So this morning, here we can turn to Joshua 15. It will be quite a chunk. Don't worry, we won't read everything. But uh, there are five chapters that I would like to uh, give an overview of. So we'll be reading a few verses here and there from these chapters. And uh, we've been going through the book of Joshua, for those that are new here this morning, for some time now. Uh, the last time we looked at the allotment of the eastern side, or Transjordan, of some of those tribes. And uh, now the rest of the nation is getting their allotments given to them. So, we'll start in 15 verse 1. This then was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah by their families, even to the border of Edom, the wilderness of Zin, southward, was the uttermost part of the south coast. And the south border was from the shore of the Salt Sea, from the bay that looked southward. And then what follows is an, an, a description of all the borders of Judah. And so verse 13, and we'll pick up there. And unto Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave it a part among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord of Joshua, even the city of Arba, the father of Anak, which city is Hebron. And Caleb drove thence three sons of Anak, Shishai, and Abiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. And he went up thence to the inhabitants of Deber, and the name of Deber before was Kirjapsifer. And Caleb said, He that smiteth Kirjapsifer, and taketh, to him will I give Achsha, my daughter, to wife. And Othniel, the son of Canas, the brother of Caleb, took it, and he gave him Achsha, his daughter, to wife. And it came to pass, as she came unto him, she moved him to ask her father a field. And she lighted off her ass, as Caleb said unto her, What wouldest thou? Who answered, Give me a blessing, for thou given me the southland. Give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. And then, as you can see, there's a very long list of cities and towns in Judah until verse 50, uh, 63. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. And the lot of the children of Joseph fell from Jordan by Jericho unto the water of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goeth up from Jericho throughout Mount Bethel, and goeth out from Bethel to Luz, and passeth along unto the borders of Archai and Akhtarot, and goeth down westward to the coast of Jephlethi, and unto the coast of Beth-Horan, the nether, and to Gezer, and the goings out thereof are the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their Inheritance, And then also their borders are laid out. Then we go to verse 9. And the separate cities of the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh, all the cities with their villages. And they drove not out the Canaanites that dwelt at Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt among the Ephraimites until this day and served on the tribute. Then we go to chapter 17, which deals with the tribe of Manasseh. And we pick up in verse 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. 
Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxing strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. And the children of Joseph spake unto Joshua, saying, Why hast thou given me but one lot and one portion to inherit, seeing I am a great people, forasmuch as the Lord hath blessed me hereunto? Joshua answered, If thou be a great people, then get thee up to the wood country, and cut down for thyself there in the land of the Perizzites and the giants, if Mount Ephraim is too narrow for thee. And the children of Israel said, This hill is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites that dwell in the land of the valley have chariots of iron, both they who are of Bethshean and her towns, and also who are of the valley of Jezreel. And Joshua spoke unto the house of Joseph, even to Ephraim and Manasseh, saying, Thou art a great people, and hast great power. Thou shalt not have only one lot. But the mountain shall be thine, for it is a wood, and thou shalt cut it down, and the outgoings of it shall be thine. For thou shalt drive out the Canaanites, though they have iron chariots, and though they be strong. And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh, and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. And there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers given you? Give me among you three men of each tribe. I will send them, and they shall rise and go through the land and describe it according to the inheritance of them. And they shall come again to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall abide in their coasts on the south, and the house of Joseph shall abide in their coast on the north. And the rest of this chapter deals with all that borders of those last tribes, all the way up chapter 19, where we pick up the last three verses, verse 49. And when they had made an end of dividing of the land for the inheritance by their coast, the children of Israel gave an inheritance to Joshua, the son of Nun, among them. According to the word of the Lord, they gave it to him. The city which he asked, even Timnasarah, in the mount of Ephraim, and he built the city and dwelt therein. These are the inheritance which Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel, that divided for an inheritance by lot in Shiloh before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So they made an end of the dividing of the land. So once again, this morning, we are back into the book of Joshua. And ever since chapter 12 about, we've been looking at these chapters. Some of them are quite lengthy in locations, geography, mountains, and rivers. And they're not always chapters, as one author writes, that stir sermonic juices or suggest warm devotional thoughts, or, or at first glance, anyway. And we see those lists returning here. Some of these chapters, in chapters 15, for instance, there's 120 cities being mentioned. Many of them are not mentioned anymore after this in scriptures. We are not even exactly sure where they're at. But um, they're all mentioned. And a few weeks ago, when we started to look at this, uh, when they were at the east side of Jordan, we looked also in particular at Caleb and his people. 
He was well in his 80s at this point, and he was still strong in faith and ready to fight the battles once again. And we see again that returning here in chapter 15. But when you read these long lists, and maybe some of you guys did it at home, and borders and so on, they are far from boring for the people that would have received them. And also to us. To each one of them mentioned, it was written down for them as a sign of their physical evidence of the faithfulness of God who had promised this so long ago to his people. It was a reminder to them and to us that his promises are sure and that he is not slack concerning his promises as we heard last week. He's given this to Abraham and now the time is fulfilled. Time does not diminish his promises or lessen them in its strength. So here in these lists we see a zoomed in focus on these concrete gifts to the people. I'm sure that if your uncle phones you and said your great-grandfather left you a piece of land, you'd be very curious about the exact location of it and how far it goes, east and west. You probably want to know every meter of it. And so we have that for these people given. Ralph Davis says, all these boundaries and towns are little incarnations of God's fidelity and therefore hardly boring. And as the people settled in these towns and in these villages that they built not for themselves, they enjoyed the vineyards that they did not plant, they found the wells that they didn't dig for themselves, they would rejoice in the faithfulness of their God and his abundant blessings to us. And think of the abundant blessing to us this morning, just even this morning. Some of them might be mundane to you. Your crops are growing in the fields. Your pantry was full. You grabbed whatever you wanted to for food. Your car started. You're sitting here safe and sound. There's a newborn baby on the background. And another is a baby kicking in the womb. We have roofs over our heads, a place to call home. We have the emblems of the gospel in front of us. All these blessings are poured upon us daily. And we remember, of course, the ultimate blessing that the Lord gives in the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. So I'll leave you with those thoughts about these lists and won't go over into all the details and geography of them. There's great books on them if you want to find out a little bit more where is what exactly and so on. But sprinkled through these chapters are lessons for us today. They're written down for a purpose. And the overarching themes of these chapters is the faithfulness of God and the first showings and the foreboding signs of the faithlessness of his people. So in chapter 15, we see the land division of Judah. And in the middle of the chapter, we see the writer going again back to Caleb and his family, and then it resumes with a long list. Observe that Judah is the first one to get this inheritance. It was prophesied long ago. I think about a year or two ago, I went through all the prophecies that Jacob gave on his deathbed to, to his sons that Judah would have preeminence. Even though he was the fourth-born son, he would be that royal tribe in Israel. Jacob said, Genesis 49, 8 to 12, and he says in 9 and 10, he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion, who shall rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. And we see here the beginnings of that promise and prophecy of the uh, fulfillment of this tribe moving into position of leadership more and more as the Old Testament unfolds. And they get a, a good chunk of land. David, of course, will come out of Judah, and ultimately David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes out of this tribe. In verse 13 of this chapter, we see an end of the account of what started to happen last week about Joshua or about Caleb and the giants. And we looked at it in detail. And God has kept him unusually strong for his age. He was full of faith. He was unwavering in his trust to God. And he trusted the God of the promise. And so with those gifts and that mindset, he fought. As we have seen that he did that throughout his life, even when he was very young. And that's why Moses said, there's a different spirit in this man. Because he wholeheartedly followed the Lord. His mind was set on the Lord. He feared God. He never feared giants or others. And stood up even when it was difficult. And we read in this account that he slew three sons of Anak. And this was an example how all Israel should have been when they entered into the land. They should have done what he does. An old man at this point, yet he was giving a great, great example. And they should have gotten rid of all their enemies. But as we see in our readings today, we see that was not the case, and it had terrible consequences. And Caleb makes his enemies small. Now Caleb still wanted to smite some further territory beyond his region, Kirjab Sefer, now, this area was first already conquered in chapter 10. But now we see that they have gone back into the city. Remember, the area was left vacant for a while. They would always go back to Gilgal, where they landed. And then the division of the land started. So in the meantime, some of these Canaanites that fled had dribbled back into their cities. And then he asked for an unusual thing. He says, whoever smites this city, will get my daughter to wife. Smart, perhaps he wanted to see if the reluctance that was in Israel to do this, perhaps he wanted to spur him on a little bit. Also, of course, he wanted a godly wife for his daughter. He was not going to give his daughter to any old Israelite boy that came along. So he sets up a challenge. And he was a very godly man that way. He sets an example. Fathers being involved in their children's life but he does say you have to do something for it and at the same time he fishes out a next generation of courage and of faith as he had shown throughout his life so Otniel his nephew came forward and smote and took the city and it must have been quite an undertaking quite a challenge but he did live up to his name his name was lion or strength of God so his name means and he received his promised bride. So Adniel fought for his bride. And we see him again back in Judges. He again stands up for the people of Israel who are under the yoke of a foreign king. And he delivers Israel from his enemies. You see that, that line of godly people that always has kept throughout scripture is always godly men that are setting the example, he also becomes 
a judge. He also pictures, as one from the line of Judah, a great picture of Christ who fought for his bride, the church, slew the enemy, and sought her with his own blood and bother. Think of the love that Othniel had for her and what he was willing to do to get her hand. Think of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that he does for his people. How he entered into a foreign territory, how he was mocked, spit upon, treated as an enemy, crucified, and the king of glory died to save sinners, his bride. Now I'll leave you dads figure out the application. If you have any daughters that are of eligible age, you can figure out applications, how you're going to do that, what kind of challenge you will set up. But uh, it's an interesting picture. Now apparently... The land, the dowry that was given with this bride was a piece of land. And the daughter here, we see her asking for some additional blessing. Apparently it was a bit of a dry piece of land. There was no water. So he gave it to her. He gave her the upper and the lower springs, verse 19. And this account is repeated in Judges 1, just a little family account. It doesn't appear that she was ungrateful or disrespectful with the original diary, but it was a wise request that she sought from her father. A picture of God, our father, wise and kind and faithful to us. And he tells us to be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known unto God. To seek him, to knock, to call upon him, and to trust that no good thing he will hold from his children especially when it comes to asking for spiritual blessings. Growth, nearness to him, growth in holiness, sanctification, usefulness in the work of his kingdom. The Lord Jesus spoke about this in Luke 11, verse 9. And he said, I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receive it. And he that seek it, find it. And to him that knock it, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give for a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Perhaps this morning you are walking in a dry land, a land that was initially offered to her, and we're kind of dry in our faith. Nothing is super exciting. Our love has grown cold. We can pray for a revival. We can pray with David to quicken us. David says, quicken me. That was often his state. And he would ask the Lord to quicken him, to incline his heart once more to the Lord, to change his affection once again. And then the chapter goes on to mention a long list of cities and villages that Judah would inherit. And in that last verse, verse 63, we see that little cloud on the horizon, and it gets worse as we proceed, that the Jebusites in Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive out. And they that dwelt, they dwelt with Judah unto that day. Could not, it said. It's probably more would not. Did they even try? Was it a lack of faith, perhaps? We see in Matthew 17, the account of the disciples 
when they were unable to cast a, a young man's son or a father's son, the devil, out of him. And the father brought him to the Lord Jesus and he cast the demon out of him. The disciples were puzzled and said, why could we not do this? Why we, could we not cast them out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Unbelief was in their way. In the case of Judah, we don't share the exact details, but they had been commanded to do this. So Caleb had been a great man of success and of faith, but his fellow tribesmen, not so much. And we see some of, more of these examples later on for us to draw warnings out of and also encouragements. But it starts to grow, this type of behavior. Next in chapter 16, we have the tribe of Joseph, which became two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Notice the order of birth rightly stated in verse 4. But when it came to the dividing of the land, Ephraim was first. This was not by accident. And it also goes back to when Jacob blesses these sons. In this case, in Genesis 48, Jacob, you remember, he is blind and he places the right hand on Ephraim and not Manasseh, the oldest. And Joseph tries to untangle the mess that he sees happening in front of him. He figured the old man is confused. But he was guided by the Holy Spirit. 48 verse 19 of Genesis. And his father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also will become a people. He also will be great. But truly, the younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make me as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And he said, Manasseh, Ephraim before Manasseh. So here again we see God's ways are not our ways. Sometimes think mistakes are happening, just as Joseph thought at the time. But God was in this plan. He sovereignly guided it. Well, David writes, God is no prisoner to what fallen man counts as normal. He does what he pleases. And we see that throughout the scriptures, don't we? The most unlikely saints get raised up to be the sons and daughters of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. That no flesh should glory in his presence. And we even see this with the great position of Judah. Although he protected his brother Benjamin, which was great, he went after an harlot in Genesis 38. Every saint and character used by God throughout the Old Testament was there because of his mercy and his grace and providence. So the remaining verses of chapter 16 is the allotments of Ephraim. Not a long list as we saw in the previous chapter, and we see some exclaves in, within Manasseh, perhaps indicating the superiority of this tribe. And again, another less promising sign, and a little worse than the one in chapter 15. If we look at verse 10, Ephraim did not drove out the Canaanites, but dwelt in Gezer. But they dwelt among them and served tribute. In other words, they used them as slaves. Obviously, they meant if they kept him as slaves that they were strong enough to kick him out because you have control like that over people. You should be able to uh, slay them altogether as they were commanded. But they, they let them live among them. 
Their beliefs were shown among them. Their pagan practices were there. Their gods, their graven images, and they used them for their own benefit by making them slaves, making the first sin even worse. John Calvin says, and he's always colorful when he picks out the sins of others. He says, Ephraim is effeminate when he does this. He doesn't expel the Canaanites, which he should have done. God has given them this lot almost by his hand, as it were, straight out of heaven, and they refuse to obey. Almost all the battles except the one in Ai have been won, and God has shown his faithfulness year after year after year, and yet, in the face of God, they say, no, we will do our own thing. We'll use these people for our labor, justifying it in some way, perhaps. And notice again, too, that they now dwelt among them. They were not in a separate city. They were in close proximity. And this would, as we know, if you read the book of Judges afterwards, would become a tremendous snare to the people of Israel, just as God has warned them. But they tolerated sin in the clear directions of the law of God. They sowed little sins here and there, one city here or another city there, but soon enough it would spring into a full crop of fruit that they did not know how to deal with. And we see the same scenario in chapter 17 when Manasseh gets his lot on this side of the Jordan, verse 12 and 13. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxing strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. So again, the numbers were there to do so, but they refused to do it. And now we see this behavior rampant within Israel. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. What one tribe does, the other one will pick out as well. Overall, the conquest had been a tremendous success. But all these little blemishes make it look a little less glamorous. You also notice from verse 14 onwards in chapter 17, and towards the end of the chapter, there's a dispute, a complaint launched against Joshua by the offspring of Joseph, that the lot that God has given them was not quite sufficient enough. They saw that this portion was quite insufficient, actually. And they saw themselves, as you read, they were a great tribe. And God has blessed us with numbers, they said. Kind of pious language they use as they go to Joshua and uh, say, you know, God has blessed us. We're great in numbers. He must have made a mistake when we were given this lot. As though God was unaware of the size of that lot that they had. Pride had also entered in, as they probably did not speak just about the numbers of people they had, but that they came from that tribe that was from Joseph, the ruler of Egypt. And again and again with this tribe, we see this attitude popping back in the Old Testament. Perhaps you recognize this subtle thinking or action in yourself when you pray or when you want something from someone. We package it in pious talk. King Saul was great at this. When he did that. Now keep in mind. They're going to Joshua. Which is one of theirs. It's one of their tribesmen. In the line of Joseph. 
Perhaps they think, well, we can take advantage of this. Will our brother show us any favors? Can we use this lineage to get some more land? Also remember that if they were to get more, someone else would have to get less. So it's quite selfish. And notice also the absence of seeking the Lord in asking him for more. And then they kind of make it to Joshua and they say, you, you did this. You know, why have you done this? So we see so far in these tribes, some ways you see the return of that previous generation. They were to go to Moses and Aaron and said, you know, you took us out of here, right? Why did you do this? Why don't we have enough food? And so on and so on. So we see this new generation is not all that different. Even though they had been taken by the miraculous hand of God, they still complained, not quite happy with their lot in life. And this was dangerous grounds. They really raised their fist against God. It was a good land. It was sufficient. It flowed with milk and honey. Yet it was not quite good enough. Well, you notice that Josh was rather wise and bit of sarcasm that he used in his answer. He said, yes, indeed, you are a great people. And there is some land here in the forest. Cut the trees, work the field, and chase out the parasites and the giants if you think your lot is that narrow. In other words, he says, do something about it. Do something about it. You have the means. We've won every other battle. Get off and do something. Well, with that, they say that that force of peace is not good enough either. And more troubling, their hearts kind of leak out, as it were, and you see what's really going on on the inside. They bring up the, the Canaanites, the chariots. They are unbeatable. They don't have that type of equipment. We'll be struck down like weed whackers in front of them, the, the type with metal blades, they think. Notice that language of unbelief and what an offense to God that was. And what it must have been sad for Joshua after all this time he encountered these type of problems. After all they've seen to see this type of distrust. While Joshua again shows himself to be good and gracious and a long-suffering leader in verse 17 and 18. And again, he emphasizes, yes, you are a great people with great power. And indeed, you will not only have one lot, but you still have to go get it. The mountain shall be yours. You shall go cut it down and get it. And yes, those chariots, as impressive as they are, you will drive them out. They had done it before. Joshua doesn't negate these obstacles that are in their way. But he tells them that God has promised and he will do so. He basically says to them what Moses had told the people in Deuteronomy. He said, if thou shalt say in thine heart, these nations are more than I, how can I dispossess them? Thou shalt not be afraid of them. Thou shalt well remember what the Lord thy God did unto Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great temptations which thine eyes saw the signs, the wonders, and the mighty and the outstretched arm, whereby the Lord thy God brought thee out, so shall the Lord thy God do unto all the people 
of whom thou art afraid? And the answer that Joshua gives is sort of similarly when Paul writes about men not working. He says, if a man shall not work, he shall not eat. Thomas Scott remarked on this passage. He said, alas, often we professing Christians are often more disposed to murmur, to envy and covet than to be contented, thankful, and ready to distribute or give. How true that is, isn't it? The lineup at the complaint section in any store is always much longer than the, the box where you can put your positive notes in. And how careful we are to what's in our own lives to see the beginnings of that type of murmuring and distrust. Christians are called up constantly to build up ourselves in the most holy faith. This takes effort, takes labor, takes time. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Moving into chapter 18, we see that the tabernacle now has been moved from Gilgal to the original landing place to Shiloh in the region of Ephraim that they had just gotten awarded. So in the midst of some of these faithlessness, we see against the steadfastness and faithfulness of God. He places the tabernacle in the middle of the country, an easy access to all. The tabernacle where the heart of worship is to be had, where the sacrifices and all the feasts would be, where the people could go and meet the Lord in that tabernacle. And it would stand there until the Philistines would steal it right when Eli died, by the way. Shiloh was also mentioned, as we read, in that prophecy that Jacob gave on his deathbed to Judah. And he mentioned someone by the name of Shiloh, that that person would come. The Messiah, which indicates rest. Shiloh, or city of peace, is also translated. Rest by this tabernacle what it, and what it stood for. And ultimately, of course, the rest that we find in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet again, we see here that Joshua had to stir up the people in the presence right in front of that tabernacle. He stirs them up. Joshua did as we should do amongst ourselves as believers to stir ourselves to love and good works. It says, in this case, the work of possessing the land. In verse 3, he's asking them, how long will they wait to go into the land that the Lord your God has given you. They were still kind of waiting. What was the reason for their slackness? They're waiting. We're not given those details. Perhaps they'd gotten used to living off the spoils that all these other cities had conquered. They lived off the spoils. Some of them were extremely wealthy. There was food. And, um, you know, they were living off of that, sort of relaxing and learning trades and settling in, rebuilding some of these places and working the fields, maybe it wasn't all that appealing to them. Perhaps being separated from all the other tribes whom they had traveled with all those years together, uh, they didn't like that either. And they were kind of self-satisfied. And then our growth stops, doesn't it? Our progress stops. And this type of thinking had infected quite a few of these remaining tribes. The gifts of God are not to be squandered. It was rude and disrespectful to them not to use it. 
They were in fact unthankful to God. Whatever it was, Joshua again kindly as that mediator that he is rebukes him for it right in the presence of this tabernacle. God is there in Shiloh. And as a faithful leader, he's patient with his flock. And as a father to this younger generation, he leads them into obedience. And as he did with Manasseh, he did here. He put them to work. Three of each of these men from each of these tribes would go through the country and would write a description of it in a book. And they would come back to Shiloh before the temple, before God. It was a solemn occasion, and there they would cast lots for these seven parts which they had to divide it in. And he reminds them, those tribes that already have their peace are not available any longer, so there's no problems. Well, this they did, and they were obedient in that way, what Joshua had told them. And the rest of the land was divided among the remaining tribes. There's one note about Simeon, also in fulfillment of the prophecy of Jacob. His, his peace is kind of within uh, a tribe of Judah, and uh, eventually he would be scattered among the tribes. And all the others and their families find their lot. And lastly, we see that Joshua was receiving one city. He had asked for particularly one place, and so he received it. He was modest. He waited until the end. Everybody else got their property first, and then he built a city, it says, or likely rebuilt a city for his posterity. So he was still being fruitful at this age, or well into his 80s, but he served the nation first before giving any other portions away. In verse 49, it says, the children of Israel gave it to him. So shows too that he didn't do this on his own accord completely, but sought the approval and the involvement of the rest of this people. So here, as we look back on all that dividing of the land, we see that interesting picture. And we see it started with Caleb as a bookend on this side, and then with Joseph as a bookend on this side, and in between, the rest of the tribes. And of course, Caleb was very positive. Joshua is very positive. And in between, not so much. There's some <coughs> concerns that are starting to happen. In verse 51, it closes this section that a lot was picked for these tribes. And we see there was no murmuring, no complaining at this moment anyway. And each gets his lot in life. And all the circumstances, that's for our own life too. The lot picks the lot in our life, and all the circumstances that fill it are all led by his sovereign hand, controlled by the Lord of heaven and earth, who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So a major section here is closed, which started all the way back as they left Egypt and proclaims that great faithfulness of God And the song that we sung earlier, Great is your faithfulness, and the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never come to an end. Well, looking at some of these negative signs we saw throughout the section, the partial obedience when it comes to driving out the enemies, the complaining about the real estate that was received, and the complaining about God, really, the slothfulness in the speed they that they did take the land, shows us it was kind of a fragile, shaky rest that they had entered. 
They had long looked forward to it, and yet it was shaky at best. And it shows you the limitations of what humans can do, the, the fallenness of men. And we see that often in Scripture, isn't it? When Noah was rescued out of the waters with the ark, he gets off the ark, he gets drunk. We see David, after finally he's king, he's been coronated, the nation is unified, he had won many battles, that the ark is at the right spot, he falls. And we see that often with all these characters in scripture, they are blotted, they are sinful. These Israelites were reluctantly to fully and to systematically root out sin. And they were going to keep the Canaanites. They figured it was a good deal, not realizing it would enslave them in the end. And we don't need to look very far in our own lives to see the same attitude, isn't it? We don't just want to pick up stones to these Israelites here and say, oh, look at them, but look at our own sins and decisions, even that we make as Christians, as, as believers, our own slowness and slackness to our groom that bought us with his own blood. The slowness to believe his word, the slowness to pray or to call upon the Lord in serious prayer, the slowness to repent, the subtle way that we complain, maybe not so subtle, about our lot in life. And yet again, we see that great mercy of God that he is slow to anger, isn't he? Slow to anger, slow to pour his wrath upon us. He pities us like children that easily go astray. And how is he gracious to us and merciful and compassionate as he was here to the children of Israel? And again, we see here in Joshua a great type of Christ that he intercedes for them, he helps them, he places them on the right road. And as we prepare, or perhaps have prepared at home, our hearts for the Lord's Supper, we are once again reminded of the, the good news of the gospel, the need for a perfect man. That rest that they got in those portions in the land wasn't it. It would go south pretty quick. <clears throat> but it reminds us again of the perfect man that we need, that stands in our place. And the Lord's Supper does this. Reminds us of the riches, of the promises, of the standing that we have in Christ. We have entered into that rest. Yes, we need to be sanctified. That's a growing process in all of our lives. But we have that rest if we have Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The Lord Jesus brings us that true rest. And this morning, ask yourself, do I have that rest? It's not based on our obedience, but we go to him that was obedience for us. And from that, of course, we seek to be holy and obedient, but our obedience would never cut it. As we see here in these chapters, whenever the Lord presents something good to them, they, they fail. They could never keep the peace. They could never keep the enemies out. They could never remain without sin. They needed that great salvation that was represented there at Shiloh, peace of God, that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I'd like to end with Psalm 16. It talks about the inheritance that the psalmist talks about. He said, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritance. I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My reins also instruct me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. We put the Lord in front of us, right? When we remember the Lord's Supper, think of what he has done. Think how he's bought us with his body. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope for thou not, shalt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer the Holy One to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for um, fulfilling your word at the time of Joshua and always standing by your word. Father, we live in time where sometimes become impatient, Lord. And um, would you draw us to yourself, Lord? Would you see, uh, help us to see for believers, Lord? And we've maybe lost that sense of, of, of the greatness of the gospel, the greatness of our Savior. Would you help us to see him once again? Would you fill us with your spirit? Help us to even now, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, to, to ponder that great fact, the incarnation of God becoming men and redeeming a bride for himself. In Jesus' great name, amen.